is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Numbers 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. Well, can you tell? Can you tell? Can you see? Afghanistan is not at the top of the list right now, is it? Most news programs are not starting with it. Some are, most are not. There's a lot I want to talk about today, but the fact of the matter is, Talibanistan is what we'll call it. I notice the Indian press is calling it that. And they're right. Talibanistan, the genocide, spreads. And more than that, they've now said that they're going to build an alliance with their number one new friend, Communist China. So all the isolationists you see on TV and in other places, uh, just so you know, um, they've done grave disservice to this country. The generals at the top of the brass, the Pentagon, grave disservice, and the rest of them. And we'll get to this, and we must get to this, but there was uh, an issue today. Here's the first paragraph of National Review. Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that the House will vote to enshrine into law reproductive health care for all women across America, quote-unquote, following the Supreme Court's refusal to block a Texas law that prohibits abortion after a harpy can be detected. Now, apparently only men who agree with abortion on demand and taxpayer-financed abortions are free to speak. If you're a man who doesn't believe in abortion, you haven't experienced it, you haven't experienced pregnancy, so you need to keep your mouth shut. See how that works? See how that works? Well, it doesn't work. Not for me. Women's health rights. There's two human beings involved here, at least two. If, it's, if you have a pregnancy with multiple babies, obviously there's more. Obviously there's more. And that's the moral issue. It's not a choice issue. You're not picking a pizza with or without pepperoni here. 
What did the court do? Well, to my chagrin, it did not overturn Roe v. Wade, which everybody knows was a bogus decision. Even the late, great Ruth Bader Ginsburg said it was effectively a bogus decision. They wanted to get what they got, and they got what they got. The court itself said its decision does not block the ban, or excuse me, doesn't overturn Roe v. Wade. But the law has to be settled in the state of Texas first. Then if it's challenged, the court will decide whether or not to hear the case. That's it. That's all it decided. But you wouldn't know that from the media today and the Democrats today. Again, all speaking in one voice. Is there a single media outlet in America or a single reporter you're aware of who hasn't trashed the Supreme Court and insisted on abortion on demand right up to the last second paid for by you, the taxpayers? Then the New York Slimes, which really has covered up so many holocausts throughout the last hundred and some years, very concerned, so concerned it lies about the polling. Says something to the effect, 58% of the public polled uh, supports abortion. And yet when you break down actual polling, it points out that the significant percentage of the public, I think it's well over a majority, oppose partial birth abortion. Oppose all kinds of abortions. But they don't talk about that. Now this will be a debate that we'll have another day and another time should the matter reach the Supreme Court, undoubtedly it will, and should the court take it up And we'll get into the particulars, as we do about every two or three years. But the same liars who lie to you about Afghanistan, the same liars who lie to you about what's going on on the border, the same liars who lie to you about everything else are lying about this. The court took no substantive position. And even so, it was a 5-4 vote with Hollywood, John Roberts, throwing in with with the radicals on the court. I wonder what they're going to make of the Roberts Court in the future. I think they're going to say it's an utterly incoherent, highly political court. The Chief Justice is a lightweight. He's an intellectual lightweight. And he is a lightweight when it comes to uh, jurisprudential issues. He just is. Now... Just to bring this full circle and close it, we're not going to get into it today just because the media is hyperventilating. Jen Psaki at the White House briefing today, it was a simple question that was asked. Cut 20, Mr. Producer, go. Why does the president support abortion when his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong? He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Why does the president, who does he believe then should look out for the unborn child? He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions, uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. See? Any of you women out there oppose abortion who've been pregnant? I think so. Many do. So that's not an answer. The problem with the pro-abortion crowd is they're irrational. They're irrational. 
If somebody shoots a pregnant woman, kills the woman, and kills the baby, they're charged with two counts of murder. Should they be charged with one count of murder? They say, follow the science. I hope the fools at Salon and the fools at Vanity Fair are paying attention. Follow the science. We have more and more scientific knowledge and expertise when it comes to pregnancies. And the ability to save babies earlier and earlier. Is that a baby or is it not? And what makes it a choice and not a baby? They have to change the subject. They have to change the argument. Whatever one's position is, you have to admit when you're aborting a baby, you're killing a baby. That's what you're doing. It's a human being. So to just blow it off as a choice, it's not just a choice. It's not just a choice, and it's not really, people like me argue, it really shouldn't just be one person's decision. I understand it's one person's body, but it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Because there's nobody representing the baby. But this is par for the course. Par for the course. When they spend our country into oblivion like drunken Marxists, it's our babies and a generation yet born that is going to have to deal with the consequences of such a thing. And the same people, for the most part, who are radical abortionists, right up to the end, partial birth abortion, the taxpayers should pay for it and all the rest of it, they're also pushing for endless spending. So if you do happen to have a baby, they're incredibly burdened in shouldering the piggishness and selfishness of a generation that keeps voting itself wealth that hasn't even been created yet, that its children and grandchildren and generations yet born are going to have to create. They're going to be indentured service to the debt, servants to the debt that's been created by those who have already died. So, of course, they don't want to talk about the morality of any of this. It's a choice, that's it. We want to help people, that's it. Now, many of the same people today who are banging the pots and pans over Roe versus Wade, including Nancy Eva Pelosi, have said nothing. Nothing about missing children. Missing children? Yes, missing children. Immigrant children. About a third of them. Where are they? Where are they? What happened to them? Real children. Their mothers made choices that they should live. Now, Jen Psaki should be well aware of this, having had children. How important this issue is, right? Well, more on this when I return. I'll be right back. Lovin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. 
It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I'm told by Mr. Producer, no confetti and cake here, that this is my 18th year in the slot at 6 p.m. when I started. I did a one-hour show on WABC in New York, September 2nd, 2003. September 2nd, 2003, 6 p.m. I did a one-hour show, WABC, my 18th years. So I'm going to go out and get a tasty cake, I think, tonight. Just kidding. So the Democrats are very, very concerned about choices. Except when it comes to health care, except when it comes to education, except when it comes to any aspect of a free person's life. They wish to impose their will in every way possible. Except when it comes to aborting babies. Then choice trumps life. It just does. Notice the radical abortionists don't say, look, in the case of a mother's health or rape or some other circumstance, you know, uh, that's when we support abortion. They never say that. They support it right to the end, partial birth abortion, funded by all taxpayers, whether they want it funded or not, whether it's part of their belief system or not. No exceptions. None. I notice most of the people who argue this are white supremacists, like Nancy Pelosi, because I guess we're all white supremacists, right, Mr. Producer? The white supremacists, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, because in the black community, the proportion of abortions far outweighs the percentage of the black community as a percentage of the population. So for the white-dominated, white supremacist, American Marxist movement, a.k.a. that includes the Democrat Party, uh, obviously they're not interested in more people of color, they're interested in less people of color. And in the meantime, Rick Moran writing a PJ Media, disgraceful, Biden administration has lost one-third of illegal alien kids who may now be in the hands of traffickers. Now, I'm sure this is a big story at NBC and ABC and CBS, the New York Slimes, the Washington Compost. I'm sure this is a big story on CNN and MSLSD. There were more than 65,000 illegal alien children who arrived at the U.S. border between January and May, and according to a report by Axios, which is a left-wing site, HHS care providers were unable to reach one in three of the kids following their release. The kids were supposed to be released into the care of a relative or government-approved sponsor, but the massive number of children being held by HHS and makeshift shelters 
along with the political pressure on the Biden administration to release the children from custody, and her puke elk, may have put thousands of vulnerable children in danger. By law, the kids cannot be held in U.S. custody longer than 72 hours. There's a liberal court. And yet many thousands of children were housed in tents set up by HHS as they waited for a relative or designated sponsor to pick them up. Therein lies the danger for these children. While so-called sponsors were supposed to be thoroughly vetted by the government to make sure that children would be placed in safe environments. However, there was enormous pressure to move the children through the system so they wouldn't become a political issue to attack the Biden administration. I don't look at it as attack the Biden administration. So it wouldn't become a political issue because the Biden administration had the borders wide open. And as a consequence, created yet another catastrophe. Which means that HHS had to largely contract out the process of finding a sufficient number of qualified sponsors. More frightening yet, the number of missing children is probably far higher since the Biden administration failed in its responsibility to make follow-up calls to many of the illegal alien children. And more kids crossed the border illegally in June to August than in the previous three months, which is what we're talking about. If this was a Republican administration in the White House, children's rights advocates, immigration activists, Catholic charities, the NGOs from all over the world will be screaming bloody murder about lost kids. But since it's by criticizing the president, just isn't as fun as it used to be. So where are the children, Joe? That's a question a lot of people who aren't professional activists, but who care if kids were sold into sex slavery or taken by some drug gang, we want to see the answers. So I would ask Jen Pasaki, even though we guys have never been pregnant, although apparently some have, even though we guys haven't been pregnant and haven't, haven't had children, we do care about children. Do you Democrats care about children? Or is this just another choice? Shouldn't the media on the left be saying something? Shouldn't they be concerned about this? Where's the hue and cry? Look, look at what we've, we've, in the last 48 hours, they've unleashed genocide in Afghanistan. They're demanding abortion on demand, funded by the U.S. taxpayers. And we've got thousands, tens of thousands of illegal alien children we can't find. They call him Mr. Right, Mr. Conservative, and Mr. Constitution. But you can call him Mark at 877-381-3811. You know, I look at this, we look at this. Afghanistan, the genocide that is taking place as I speak. Our media are bored with this subject. They're moving on. They want to help protect their, their man, Biden. And their gal pal, Nancy, Eva Pelosi, and all the rest of the agenda. They move on. But I'm not going to forget the people back there. You understand they're being slaughtered. And they've announced today that they're going to be uh, working now with Communist China. And they believe in what Communist China wants to do. Now, the irony of this, of course, is Communist China is slaughtering Muslims. 
But within the Muslim world, there are Muslims and then there's Muslims. Muslims slaughter each other. They do it in Afghanistan. They do it in the Middle East. So it depends on what kind of Muslim you are, I suppose. And so this president has not just blood on his hands. He has a swimming pool of blood. So to all the people in his administration that supported this, this decision to leave Americans behind, SIV visa holders behind, and others who were great patriots to this country. The murder rates in our cities are at record highs. You wouldn't know it. Nobody talks about it anymore. People are being slaughtered in our own cities. In the aggregate, hundreds, hundreds, every week. Big deal, right? Today, all the talk is about a Supreme Court decision, which is a very logical, rational decision, and yet it was a 5-4, very close, which is you can't really bring your case to the Supreme Court yet because you haven't exhausted all your legal challenges at the state level. We in the Supreme Court, we can't be the court of first or second resort. There's a lot of towns, there's a lot of counties, there's a lot of states in this country. It's simply impossible. And so now the rallying cry is the court wants to take a woman's choice away. Now let's be clear. Whatever the circumstances, when they talk about a woman's choice, they're talking about killing a baby. We can debate the circumstances, but again, it's the, it's the dehumanization of the individual. Whether it's to talk about dual citizens over there in Afghanistan, as Biden did, or everybody who wanted to get out had a chance to get out, it's on them. Or abortion. Abortion is about dehumanizing babies. And by the way, ignoring the science. All the people concerned about the science when it comes to the virus, many of whom don't even understand it, and masks and all the rest, they're not concerned about the science when it comes to the unequivocal scientific fact that those are babies being aborted. And I'll repeat and underscore the point. For the Democrat Party and the media and the usual uh, mouthpieces, They don't make exceptions for the mother's health or any other exceptions. It's abortion on demand, partial birth, right up to the last second, and you're to pay for it, whether you morally accept it or not. I just want to make the point. And now we have, according to Axios, which is supportive of this administration, now we have tens of thousands of kids missing illegal alien children who were not aborted. Their mothers wanted to have them, Jem Pasaki. And there's barely, barely a, a discussion about it today. Missing. According to this article, tens of thousands. Do we care about human life or don't we? Because clearly Biden does not. 
I said clearly Biden does not. Clearly Pelosi does not. Clearly Schumer does not. The Democrat Party doesn't stand for life. It doesn't stand for human beings. It stands for big centralized government where they have power. And they control individuals. And they self-righteously claim that in doing so, they care for people. They're the compassionate ones. They dehumanize people. Look what is going on and has in Louisiana with this horrific hurricane and the floods. New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, other parts of the East Coast. I'm from Philadelphia. The pictures I see and from friends of mine back there, they've never seen anything like this. When they say the Schuylkill River has risen as high as it's risen, I know exactly where they're talking about. Almost 30 deaths. And you know what the Democrats are talking about? Climate change. Starting with Biden. This is about climate change. Biden on Ida's devastation. Extreme storms in the climate crisis are here. We've never had hurricanes and tornadoes. We've never had floods. We've never had... Always to exploit for the purpose of stealing your liberty and empowering their party. That's the goal. Stealing your liberty and empowering their party. And they have a corrupt media that leads the way, that sings their chorus and their praises. So now when we have some kind of devastation due to nature, it's said to be due to you. It's due to capitalism. It's due to the way we live. It's due to your liberty. It's due to your property. Another opportunity, huge opportunity for government to step in. Hours after the remnants of Hurricane Ida, this is the Associated Depressed, unleashed record rainfall across the northeastern United States, killing at least 26 people and resulting in millions of dollars in damage, Biden said the country was seeing the consequences of the climate crisis. This is a man, everything he touches is disastrous. It causes a crisis. In many cases, it causes people their lives. The past few days of Hurricane Ida and the wildfires in the West and the unprecedented flash floods in New York and New Jersey is yet another reminder that these extreme storms of the climate crisis are here, he says. We need to be much better prepared. I don't care how prepared you are. Nature is damn powerful. Damn powerful. And so there we go. We get the false, the false choice. Somehow, if you people would eat less meat, would use less paper products, would stop driving automobiles powered by fossil fuels, maybe breathe a little less, if you people would take some responsibility for the environment, these things wouldn't be happening. What a liar, what an SOB, all of them. All of them. When Congress returns this month, he says, I'm going to press further action on my Build Back 
better plan that's going to make historic investments in electrical infrastructure. Where does electricity come from, ladies and gentlemen? By rubbing your hands together? Modernizing our roads. You're going to modernize roads. What drives on roads, Mr. Producer? Vehicles. Bridges and water systems, sewer and drainage systems. That's not what that law is about. That's not what that $3.5 trillion is about. It's about stealing the election system for the Democrats. It's about amnesty for millions and millions of illegal aliens. And by the time they're done with it, there'll be millions more. It's about destroying the capitalist system and replacing it with a system that impoverishes people throughout the world. And then, of course, AP. Numerous studies have shown that as global temperatures rise, the atmosphere holds more moisture, increasing the likelihood of extreme rainfall events such as the one that unfolded Wednesday night. This is a press report. This is a press report. Then they go on. Hurricane Ida didn't care if you were a Democrat or Republican, says Biden, ruler or urban. This destruction is everywhere, and it's a matter of life and death, and we're all in this together. This is one of the great challenges of our time, but I'm confident we'll meet it. They're howling at the moon. And they're calling it science. They're howling at the moon, and they're calling it science. And the only people, the only people who have to, who have to surrender to this, it's not government bureaucrats. No, they're going to enrich themselves. It's not the central government. No, it's going to get bigger. It's not the politicians. No, they're going to be more powerful. It's you. The working people of this country who have little relationship to the government. It's you. Shortly before the president spoke, newly minted New York Governor Kathy Haschel, however the hell you pronounce it, joined the New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's done a fantastic job, other local leaders, to discuss the daunting recovery efforts underway across the New York metropolitan region. Every official who spoke made it a point to stress the need for action on human-caused climate change. Human-caused climate change. If it's human-caused, then humans must be controlled. If humans are the evil, if humans are the problem, then humans must be controlled. And of course, by other humans who are smarter, more knowledgeable, and in positions to do something about it. Now, I want to touch this a little bit further when we return, because climate change has nothing in the world to do with what took place. Nothing. Climate change, they call it. Finally settle on a nomenclature. I'll be right back. Lovin. By the way, we're having uh, Larry Elder on the program in about a half hour next hour. All the white supremacists in the Democrat Party, that would include uh, 
Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren have been campaigning for the governor, the white supremacist uh, Newsom. And of course, Newsom has called in all his favors, all the bureaucrats, all the public sector unions, all the organizations that get state money and all the rest, have been organizing very, very heavily. Ballots have been mailed to everybody. In some cases, ballots have been self-printed. Um, unbelievable what goes on in this country. And almost all of it can be put at the feet of this American Marxist movement. Now, how much time do I have here, Rich? Well, let me first do this. The 900,000 of you or so who have your editions of American Marxism, written or audio, make sure you take a look at Chapter 5, which I believe is the longest chapter. I haven't checked lately. It's over 50 pages. And in there I explain this climate change movement, how it started, where it came from. It came out of Europe. It was a degrowth movement, um, so-called environmental movement. From clean air and clean water to global cooling, warming, climate change, the goal of many of the leading intellectuals behind this effort um, has been the introduction of Marxist thinking and objectives through the guise of environmentalism as the Green New Deal, which promotes economic regression, radical egalitarianism, and autocratic rule. But that movement has expanded well beyond to include virtually every programmatic and agenda-driven goal of the American Marxists which has been embraced to one degree or another by the Democrat Party, among others. The environmental movement has developed numerous areas of overlap with other Marxist-centrist ideologies and movements as well. And I really, really hope, those of you who have this book, please take a look at Chapter 5. Those of you who do not have this book, I hope you will acquire it. Please look at Chapter 5, because this is a battle, and it's a battle that's going to affect you directly. And once you read chapter 5, you will know more than almost anything, anybody else about what this is really all about. What this is really all about. Their essay, What is Degrowth? From an activist slogan to a social movement, leading degrowthers write that degrowth was launched in the beginning of the 21st century as a project of voluntary societal shrinking of production and consumption aimed at social and ecological sustainability quickly became a slogan against economic growth and developed into a social movement. Unlike so-called sustainable development, which is a concept based on false consensus, they say, degrowth does not aspire to be adopted as a common goal by the United Nations. The idea of socially sustainable degrowth or simply degrowth was born as a proposal for radical change. The contemporary context of neoliberal capitalism appears as a post-political condition, meaning a political formation that forecloses the political and prevents the politicization of particular demands. Degrowth challenges the ideas of green growth or green economy and the associated belief in economic growth as a desirable path and political agendas. Degrowth is not just an economic concept, it's a frame constituted by a large array of concerns, goals, strategies, and actions. As a result, degrowth has now become a confluence point where streams of critical ideas and political action converge. So the goal is to reverse the massive economic progress resulting from, among other things, folks, the Industrial Revolution, fossil fuels, 
which created a huge, vibrant middle class and infinite technological, scientific, and medical advancements that have overwhelmingly improved the human condition. And it goes on. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Again, I want to strongly encourage you to read it yourselves, to acquire it, and spread the word. Pushback time, baby. Pushback time, or we're going to lose it. What's happened in Louisiana and surrounding states, what's happened on the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, what's happened in Pennsylvania and other states, it's not an abstraction, it's not a theory, it's not an opportunity to destroy what's left of our system. It's nature. Nature is violent and vicious, just like the Democrats. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, Now, Sean asked me to come on his show last night on Fox, which, of course, I did. And I was walking into the studio, my studio. I have hanging in my office a... Life magazine, it no longer exists, but Life magazine cover photo of George S. Patton, which he signed as Lieutenant General. But he had three stars, dated in 1945. And I got to thinking about that as I was walking into the studio to appear on Hannity. And I got to thinking about what's going on now in Afghanistan with our cameras gone, our media's gone, with the Taliban and the other cockroaches choking off the country and hunting down human beings and their treatment of little girls and women and all the rest. I've not heard a lot of talk about this from abortionist Nancy Pelosi have you are all the rest of the media outlets for the most part and leading Democrats some exceptions but they're exceptions they're not the rule and I got to thinking about Anne Frank the diary of Anne Frank have you ever read that you really should What a brave and brilliant young girl. I got to thinking about Dwight Eisenhower and when he said, what he said when when he went to the first concentration camp he'd ever seen. And I walked back into my office and quickly printed out a paragraph or two. Then I got to thinking about our pathetic president, Pathetic Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, and yes, the pathetic Milley. None of them. None of them spoke out. 
In the case of Blinken and Sullivan, they sounded like they didn't give a crap. Then we have to listen to Pisaki, who knows nothing. I looked at her background online. All she's ever been is a political hack. She's got really almost no substantive accomplishment. Oh, and a respite where she was a commentator on CNN during the Trump administration. But people who didn't see it have contacted me. They've seen it online. They've seen the clips. So I'm going to play it for those of you who are in your vehicles this evening or at home, at your table, wherever you may be. The truckers across the nation. Cut 23, go. First, I want to talk to General Milley. General Milley, I have this hanging on my office hall. You know who this is? This is George S. Patton. You're no George S. Patton, General Milley. How many Anne Franks are there tonight in Afghanistan? How many Anne Franks are hiding in cellars all across that country today? I want to talk about the people left behind, not the 124,000 who've been evacuated to safety. I want to talk about the millions who now have had genocide unleashed upon them. And before Joe Biden became president of the United States, we're living mostly in peace and mostly in safety in what was a neutralized Afghanistan with a minimal American military footprint. I want to read something. I never do this. I went back to Dwight Eisenhower's book, Crusade in Europe, when he went to the death camps. He said, the same day, April 12, 1945, I saw my first horror camp. It was near the town of Gotha. I've never felt able to describe my emotional reactions when I first came face to face with the indisputable evidence of Nazi brutality against the Jews and ruthless disregard of every shred of decency. Up to that time, I had known about it only generally or through secondary sources. I am certain, however, that I have never at any other time experienced an equal sense of shock. I visited every nook and cranny of the camp because I felt it my duty to be in a position from then on to testify at first hand about these things in case these ever grew up at home, the belief or assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. Some members of the visiting party were unable to go through with the ordeal. I not only did so, but as soon as I returned to Patton's headquarters that evening, I sent communications to both Washington and London urging the two governments to send instantly to Germany a random group of newspaper editors and representative groups from the national legislatures. I felt the evidence should be immediately placed before the American and British publics in a fashion that would leave no room, no room for cynical doubt. Now, we have propagandists in this country from the Defense Department to the State Department to the White House. Highly paid Admiral Kirby. Nick Price, Jen Psaki, and others, and now generals who are part of the propaganda. Do you think George Patton or Omar Bradley or the top general, George Marshall, would leave American citizens in enemy territory under any circumstances or conditions, including at the order of the commander-in-chief? No commander-in-chief has ever ordered any general to leave citizens behind. What about these children and these women 
What about the Afghan allies, the men who fought next to us, firefight after firefight? What about the 80 to 100,000 SIV visas granted, special visas granted to patriots who fought side by side with Americans? Instead, we hear that the American citizens didn't act fast enough. Instead, we hear this was a massive success. Instead, we hear we will use diplomacy to deal with these Nazis. Instead, we hear we may in the future work with them against ISIS as if they're different. It's the Taliban that allowed al-Qaeda to attack us on 9-11. The Taliban. They have our equipment. They have our people. They have our allies. They are going to threaten us. They're working with the communist Chinese. They're working with Putin. They're working with the Iranians. And listen to me, America. Can you hear the screams of the people of Afghanistan tonight? Because they're screaming. Can you hear the women being brutalized? Can you hear the bullets in the execution? Because it's occurring under the cover of dark, because our media is unable to be there. While they're celebrating at the State Department and the Defense Department and at the White House, and while they want to turn the corner and change the politics, the human infrastructure of all things, and the COVID-19, by God, I've never been more disgusted with my government and the top brass of the United States military than I am right now. Listen, they're screaming. Do you hear them? They're begging for help. Do you hear them? American citizens, they say, waited too long. Waited too long while Joe Biden lied to us over and over and over again. This is a humiliation for our country. It is part of our history that can never be wiped away. And I feel so horrible for our American troops, our real soldiers, who would not have tolerated this, but for General Austin and General Milley and all the rest of them. And most of all, Joe Biden, you are blood on the hands for the rest of your life. And I'm live now. And folks, we have Americans who are still over there. I know as time goes on, for some people, it's like death. It's not that you get used to it. It's that you have to deal with it. The problem here, ladies and gentlemen, is we can't get used to this. Because there are men and women, American citizens, many of whom hopefully are not dead. And their government turned on them. These politicians turned on them. Much of the American media have turned on them in that they just don't care. It's time to move on to climate change, to abortion on demand funded by the taxpayers. It's time to move on to the subjects that matter to this tyrannical regime and its tyrannical party structure. But not so fast. We the people, not the politicians in Washington, we must demand accountability. We must insist on recriminations. This is why 
during the course of this horrific event, which is still going on, the unleashing of this genocide against perhaps hundreds of thousands of people who are going to be slaughtered, like it's Cambodia, or the Third Reich, or Stalin's Russia, or Mao's China. We are the ones who are going to have to voice the moral clarity. Because these institutions that surround us and have devoured so much of what we care about, they are not. They are responsible for this. They are responsible for this. Joe Biden did this. Nobody else. He wants credit for it. But then he wants to assign blame to others. And these are the same people, the same institutions that now insist that we destroy our economy, that now insist that we destroy how the Senate works, that now insist that the borders remain open, even though Axios reports that one-third of the little kids over a period of two to three months are missing. Missing? They're not missing. They're somewhere. Can you imagine? The slave trade in little kids, the pornography trade in little kids. Joe Biden doesn't care. He never has gone to the border to look at his handiwork. He moves on to the next subject. He's not just an incompetent. There is mass slaughter, mass torture, Mass impoverishment. In the seven or eight short months he's been president of the United States, doesn't it seem like a lifetime? The damage he's done to humanity and to our institutions is incalculable. And he's just getting started. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, I've known Larry Elder a long time. He's a very decent, thoughtful man, brilliant man, in fact, who believes in liberty and who believes in humanity, which is why he is the way he is. And it's very interesting to me to see in California, which is a dying state right now by every metric, uh, it's being depopulated, people are leaving, the borders are wide open, certain people are coming. It is a massive welfare state with the highest tax structure in the United States, and it's going higher. Uh, Bureaucrats and commissions control so much of the state. Uh, You see wildfires because they can't manage their forests. You see brownouts and blackouts because they've adopted the most radical kinds of uh, phony environmental uh, uh, agenda. And uh, then I see uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren campaigning against him. Honestly, I see all these white politicians campaigning against Larry Elder because all their talk about a white supremacist society, I would say, well, I guess they would know. Because the white-dominant Democrat Party is now working in California to defeat a man who embraces this country and embraces liberty. And is also, by the way, an African-American. Larry Elder, how are you, sir? 
Mark, doing well. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Tell us what's going on in uh, California right now and, and how people can get out and vote. Well, Mark, what's going on is everything you just now rattled off. I would only add the decline in the quality of our public education. 75% of black boys here in California, Mark, believe it or not, 75%, that's not a typo, cannot read at state levels of proficiency. And, of course, those levels are low. The math scores are even worse. Nearly half of all third graders cannot read at state levels of proficiency. And around 80% of all kids educated in our government schools are black and brown. I only mention that because that's what the left prides itself on caring about. Now, the number one obstacle towards choice in education that polls show black and, parent, black and brown parents want, the teachers union. Who's the number one funder of my opponent, Gavin Newsom? The teachers union. Uh, and poll after poll after poll shows that the people living in the inner city recognize they're getting the worst teachers, the worst principals, the worst bureaucrats, and they want the opportunity to put their kid in a private school, a religious school, homeschooling, or a charter school, and they're being denied that opportunity, yet they march in there every single year and pull that lever for the party that is thwarting the number one way of escaping poverty, and that's to at least finish high school. Mm-hmm. And what you're telling people is stop voting for the party that's destroying your, your life. Stop voting for Absolutely. the party that doesn't look out for you. Absolutely. The average price of a home uh, in California, Mark, just hit $800,000. Depending upon whatever survey you read, that's anywhere between 150% above the national average to 250% above the national average. And why is this? Because of the extreme environmentalists that have a stranglehold over Sacramento and have a stranglehold over Gavin Newsom. Uh, The number one reason people cite for leaving California in the middle class is because they cannot afford the price of a home. And the people sitting up there in Sacramento are the very ones causing the price of a home to be jacked up to the point uh, where it is. Now, people clearly don't like what's happening to their state there. They don't like how it's affecting their lives. Many are leaving. And yet, it's one-party state. It's one-party rule right now. The Democrats control everything. And not just control it. They have super majorities in the legislature. Uh, Newsom has a complete iron-fisted grip on the executive branch and so forth and uh, on their court system. So if people really want to rise up and change, if they really want to resist, if they really want to put a stop to this, they have to defeat all these surrogates and all these entities who are feeding off the taxpayers and feeding off the public, and that is to vote yes, right, on recall. Absolutely. And that's why, Mark, 1.7 million Californians signed a petition to recall this guy. And 25 to 30 percent of those were the very people who voted for him just two years earlier. Sixty five percent of Hispanics voted for him two years earlier. Now, guess what? The majority of Hispanics want him out. We have a we have a, what's called no party preference or independence. They call it normal states. They now outnumber Republicans. The majority of the independents want him out as well. This is across the board because crime doesn't have a color. The rise in homelessness doesn't have a color or a party. Uh, the rise in the cost of living doesn't have a color or a party. And the way this man shut down this state in a more severe way than did the other 49 governors while sitting up there at that French laundry restaurant with the very people that drafted the mandates. They weren't wearing masks. They weren't engaging in social distancing and his own kids were enjoying in-person yeah. private education. All right, we're going to be right back because we're not done with the great Larry Elf. This is Radio Free America on the Mark Levin Show. Call now, 877 381 
888-900-3811. Larry Elder is a candidate for governor in California. He's urging people, as we all are, to vote yes for the removal, effectively, of the current governor, who's a complete incompetent boob. Now, Larry Elder, um, what is the message that you want to say to the people listening all over California? Obviously, you've gone through the issues and so forth, but that they must turn out, they must turn out in large numbers. They can't leave it to other people to do the heavy lifting for them, right? Well, that's exactly right, Mark. You know, are you happy? Forget about Larry Elder. Are you happy that for the very first time people are leaving the state? Are you happy that the price of a home has just now hit $800,000? Are you happy stepping over homeless people? Are you happy about needles on Venice Beach? Are you happy about the crappy education people are getting K-12 through while spending $15,000 a pop per year per student? Are you happy with all of that? Well, if you are, then maybe you want to retain this guy. But if you're not, how about some change? How about some common sense? Are you happy that this state is running out of water? Israel is a desert country, Mark. They've got a little body of water next to them called the Mediterranean. They've been able to figure it out with desalination plants. We have a little body of water next to us called the Pacific Ocean, and we can't figure this out. Are you happy with how severe these forest fires are? Are you happy that... $30 billion was stolen from the Employment Development Department, money that was supposed to be for the uh, unemployment for Californians, money that was stolen by people in prison filing for unemployment benefits and getting them, people, criminals in Nigeria filing for unemployment benefits and getting them, $30 billion stolen. Are you happy with all of that? If you're not, go to electelder.com. And throw a little something in the tip jar because my opponent, Mark, can raise and spend an unlimited amount of money, and he's doing just that. From the usual suspects, the teachers' unions, the public sector unions, Hollywood, big tech. So throw something in the tip jar. Make this a bit of a fair fight. If you're not happy with what's going on in California, which is why people are leaving the state, taking their jobs with them. And I see George Soros has jumped in. He obviously wants to defeat you, too. George Soros has jumped in. Kamala Harris has jumped in. Joe Biden has jumped in. Elizabeth Warren cut a commercial for All the white supremacists. All the white supremacists. And I was called the black face of white supremacy by the L.A. Times. And all of these people are scared to death about one big thing, Mark. They couldn't care less about Gavin Newsom. They care about the 50-50 split in the Senate in Washington, D.C. And God forbid Governor Elder should replace uh, uh, Dianne Feinstein that nobody's seen in weeks. And I'm told she's in worse mental condition than Joe Biden. They're afraid I'm going to replace her with a Republican, which I most certainly would do. And that would be an earthquake in Washington, D.C. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. And I haven't thought about the fact that we haven't seen her either. No. Wow. And and I'm sure the media that are trying to destroy you are busy trying to find her, right? Oh, sure. Just like they're trying to find Hunter Biden. they're, They're scared to death. They're scared to death at a blue state like California. God forbid they should elect a common sense conservative Republican who makes an appreciable difference in their lives. They don't want me to improve the situation. They don't want me to bring down the cost of living. They don't want me to do something about homelessness. They don't want me to give people in the inner city a choice so they can get a competent education for their kids. God forbid I should make things better. And then all of a sudden, people will rethink their attitude towards Republicans and rethink their attitude towards Democrats. And that's why they're so scared. Let me just say this. We have a lot of friends in this program who are in California. Whenever I come out to the Reagan Library, it's sold out almost immediately. People say to me, what can we do? What can we do? Now, look, it's not enough for you to vote. You've got to make sure 10 other people vote, too. You've got to fight like hell. This is the least we can do. We're not asking people to go to war. We're not asking them to give up their jobs or their businesses. You be your own precinct worker. You be your own neighborhood worker. 
make sure 10 people come out and vote. Pick up your, your phone. Call people. Text people. Rally them. Galvanize them. They're voting now. you got plenty of time to do this. I mean, you don't have to do it in five minutes. You can get it done now. This is very, very important. You can't rely on the Republican Party that has its own supporters. You're not going to just be able to rely on all the conditions that have you know, devoured the state. It's going to take each and every one of you being the Paul Revere's. We talk about this every single night. This one is personal. I love Larry Elder. I love what he stands for. This is a big, big deal. It's time to fight back. This was Reagan's state, for crying out loud. And now Reagan, they say, couldn't get elected in the state of California. The way you turn things around, one step at a time. And if you're really upset about what's going on, you're trying to decide whether to leave the state or not and so forth, at least take a stand. Larry has agreed to step aside from his business and his job right now to run for governor, to try and defeat Newsom, to try and bring some sensible policies to California, which is off the edge. And so the least we can do is help him and help yourselves by defeating this guy once and for all. Anyway, any final words, Larry, and where can people go again to help you? They can go to electelder.com, electelder.com, and you're quite right, Mark. Not only is it important for you to vote, but get 10 of your friends to vote and do it now. And if you don't trust the mail, you can drop your your voting ballot off at a voting precinct. But do it right now. Go to electelder.com. There's a button there for volunteering as well. You want to get involved. You want to make some phone calls. You want to put on some lawn signs. All of that button will tell you how to do that. All right. Good luck to you, my friend. I really mean that. Thank you, Mark. God bless. And God bless you, too. I mean, wow, you're having a tremendous opportunity now in California. I know you're outnumbered. But there's probably more people than you think who are disgusted with what's going on. I'm not talking about teachers, unions, and all the rest of them. There's a lot of other people. If you don't encourage them to vote, if you don't follow up with them, they're not going to vote. And by all means, you've got to vote. Make sure your family members vote, if they're in California and so forth. This is very, very important. We need an enormous number of people to turn up because there's more Democrats and there's more corruption in that state than we've seen anywhere else, quite frankly. And that's saying a lot. But you will, you will shake the world. You will shake the world, not just America. You will shake the world. And you see what's going on here. The public sector unions. If you're in the private sector union or you're a cop or a firefighter, you shouldn't put up with this either. You should be voting Newsom out and support Larry Elder. He hates the cops. Look at you firefighters. Look at what you have to do with these forest fires all the time. Utterly mismanaged. And so private sector unions and unions of people like cops and firefighters, you got to turn out. You got to remove this clown. And in my view, strongly support Larry Elder. All of you small business people out there or individuals who just want to be left alone by the state government, who don't want to be pushed around, or maybe you want to put a new roof on your home and you got to go through all this red tape, or the taxes are literally bleeding you. Now is your chance to speak out. This is really the only way to do it in California. And it will be an earthquake. All the special interests, all the elites, all the white supremacists in the Democrat Party and the white supremacists at the L.A. Times and in their media, the white dominant leftists, they're all aligned against you. Well, kick them in the ass. You can do this. They don't think you can. I think you can. 
You're the underdog. That's fine. But here's a chance to get this done and make them the underdog. It's very, very important. Newsom says more people will die if I'm recalled. Enough people have died because he's been governor. He's a buffoon. He has no idea what he's doing. He's one of these guys that's in line. They go up the ladder. He was a mayor. He was this. Now he's governor. Then he wants to be senator. That's enough. He did a lousy job handling the virus. A lousy job. And now you have your chance. You're going to need a super-duper turnout. But I know you can do this. We're heard all over the state of California. From the tippy-top north to the tippy-bottom south. All over the state. I'm counting on you Levinites to do everything you can. Everything you can. This is an opportunity. I wish we... We had this opportunity all over the country today to deal with Biden and throw his ass out, but we don't. But you have an opportunity to do something in your state. And I know it's going to be hard. I know it, which is why you need to fight even harder. It's for your own survival, for your own well-being and that of your family. And everybody shouldn't have to run out of California because of these people. Take a stand. Even if it's a last stand, good. Take a stand. Larry mentions a very interesting point. Where is Dianne Feinstein? And the LA Times should be ashamed of it. So it won't be. It's a disgusting, disgraceful, pathetic, phony newspaper. Remember what I called them yesterday. This is organizational propaganda or organized propaganda in the case of the aggregate of all these media outlets. Organized propaganda. If Larry Elder were a radical leftist, an American Marxist, if he were pushing for the destruction of capitalism, open borders, undermining our military, undermining law enforcement, letting criminals out the back door, he would be heralded by the L.A. Times. These newspaper editors and journalists, they obviously don't they obviously don't suffer from the same circumstances and decisions that the rest of you do in California. But these bastards are corrupt and they're liars. So whatever they say, you should do the opposite anyway. You have an opportunity. But you're going to have to get other people out to vote. It's not going to be enough that you vote. It's simply not. And as Larry Elder said, you've got to do it right now. 21% of those who can vote have already voted. That's the unions. That's people who are on the government teat. That's the people who benefit from your demise, from stealing your income, from regulating your lives. They vote early and they vote often. They believe they have a stake in this election. You have a bigger stake. I'll be right back. Well, in... Talibanistan, the Taliban has said that its number one 
ally is going to be communist China. They believe in the uh, in communist China's uh, economic agenda. So in addition to all the rest of it, we've just turned over the entire region to China. And people will say, good, let them get bogged down. They're not going to get bogged down. They're not going to war with the Taliban. They're aligning with the Taliban. They're going to have access to unbelievable minerals and wealth. And a geography, if you look at Afghanistan, uh, that placed them in a strategic advantage. Mountains and tunnels are no mountains and tunnels. Against India, against Pakistan, and other countries. It gives them a lane into the Middle East that they didn't have before. And I guess they're going to get the Bagram Airport too which is a major disaster. A major disaster. Unbelievable. But don't worry, Mitch McConnell's taken the lead and said uh, they can't impeach. Here's the thing. Let me just say this. When they impeached Donald Trump twice, they knew they couldn't remove him. They knew they didn't have the votes to remove him. The goal wasn't to remove him. The goal was to hurt him politically, and otherwise. The goal was to hurt the Republican Party. The goal was to create talking points, to create tactics based on a strategy, to delegitimize his presidency if they could, to keep constant tumult taking place, stirring of the pot, making it more and more difficult, they hoped, for he and his administration to function, and ultimately looking to the next election to try and wound him so badly and to create headlines with their, with their corrupt media friends in order to take the White House ultimately. So I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. That is the reason to impeach Joe Biden. For the same exact reason. But we are stuck. We're left with people like Mitch McConnell, who's a clown. And his surrogates in the editorial pages in the media, who are clowns. Many of them are never Trumpers. That helps support what you see today. And pretend they have no responsibility for it. Of course they've contributed to this. Clowns like Ann Coulter. And others. Mona Charon. The list is so long, I can't even begin. I mean, I shouldn't have begun. But that's where we are. Well, we can't remove him. They couldn't remove Trump. But they did it anyway. You don't hear Ben Sass calling for impeachment, do you? You don't hear Romney calling for impeachment, do you? You don't hear Murkowski calling for impeachment, do you? No, 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 no. What Trump did was unbelievable. But what Biden has done, leaving American citizens behind enemy lines, defying a Supreme Court decision, violating federal immigration law, and on and on and on. No, no, no. Andy McCarthy says those aren't impeachable offenses. Well, that must be the answer then. Wow, who knew? All right, folks, we'll be right back. A lot more to cover. We're going to continue, continue to keep our eye and our, uh, our attention on what's going on in Afghanistan. 
but we have to look over our shoulder what they're trying to do to our country from within because these people are endlessly plotting and scheming. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. There was an article in the Washington Compost by Amy Goldstein. And the title of this article is Tens of Billions of Dollars in Pandemic Aid for Hospitals and Nursing Homes Not Distributed. Now, first of all, you would think those people who keep attacking other people for their views on vaccines and masks or whatever it is, would be very concerned about this. Right? But most of them are not. Begins tens of billions of dollars designated by Congress to help hospitals, nursing homes, and other health care providers stave off financial hardship in the coronavirus pandemic are sitting unused because the Biden administration has not released the money. What? They're for people dying? Gee, that's getting old. You see a pattern here. As many hospitals bulge again with COVID-19 patients, a wide swath of the healthcare industry is exasperated that federal health officials have not made available any more of the aid since Joe Biden took office. About $44 billion from a provider relief fund created last year remains unspent along with $8.5 billion Congress allotted in March for the medical care in rural areas. All right, that's over $50 billion. With the coronavirus Delta variant fueling a fourth pandemic surge, they write, healthcare institutions, lobbyists, and lawmakers have ratcheted up complaints to senior Biden administration health officials, imploring them to decide how the money will be divided and when it will be distributed. Is this not amazing? All the people going on and on about how the federal government knows everything. Fauci, the CDC, the FDA, National Institutes of Health, HHS. They're sitting on the money. And other than Amy Goldstein, I haven't seen this anywhere else. There's just no good reason for the administration to be sitting on these funds, said Mark Parkinson, President and Chief Executive of the American Healthcare Association, a trade group that represents nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Many are running short on money, he said, because the virus's heavy concentration in long-term care centers early in the pandemic is still causing potential patients and residents to stay away. Parkinson said he has had four conversations, four, since February, with the agency in the Department of Health and Human Services, that is in charge of the money. And one last month with senior aides to HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra. Each conversation we came away with the feeling would be that month, Parkinson said, and we've been wrong. The aid bottleneck is inconsistent with one of the first comments or commitments 
Biden made when he took office in January, the day after he sworn in, he he signed an executive order to make it easier for Americans to get treatment if infected with the novel coronavirus, saying his administration shall promptly provide targeted surge assistance to critical care and long-term facilities. All right, but he's not. So Biden now can be said to be responsible in part for the death of senior citizens in nursing homes and long-term care facilities like his buddy Cuomo, because these funds have been approved. He even signed the legislation to approve it. Many funds were approved by, by uh, earlier by Trump and the prior Congress. And no matter how these people lobby and press to get the money, they can't get the money. They can't get the money. They'd rather talk about masks. They can't get the... Variety, are you listening to me? Solani, listen to two little pukes. Federal health officials declined to discuss reasons for the delay, but HHS said in a statement, we continue to work expeditiously to get these funds out the door, and we'll be announcing another distribution of funds soon. Plans are being finalized. Sounds to me the same people who plan the so-called evacuation, Mr. Producer, are obviously involved in spending the money to help nursing homes and long-term facilities. Becerra has been asked repeatedly on Capitol Hill about the provider fund in his most recent testimony in June. He said during the Trump administration, there wasn't enough transparency in the process, how the money was allotted. These people are sick. We're trying to provide that transparency, make sure we direct the money where it's needed. How long can they keep using uh, Trump? Secretary did not address how the money could be redirected or when it might be released. And pandemic relief laws that created the fund last year said the money should be used to help compensate healthcare institutions and practitioners for extra expenses, loss of revenue attributed to the coronavirus. The laws do not specify how quickly the money must be spent. And they want trillions more, ladies and gentlemen, trillions more. Now, one-fourth of the $178 billion provider relief fund remains, according to March and July reports by the Government Accountability Office which urge HHS to tell Congress when it plans to give out the money. The lack of federal money to help buffer the financial shock after June 2020 is hurting places, and they go into specific examples because modern journalism believes you don't understand unless they come up with actual people. And uh, it was November when... Trump in 2020, his administration, health officials began work on what they envisioned as a fourth and final phase. For the first time, they would allow applications that were based on pandemic-related losses and expenses from the second half of 2020. The plan was sent for review by the White House Office of Management and Budget, according to senior HHS policy official from the Trump administration. When the Biden team arrived, the former Trump official said they stopped working on phase four. This was the tough part. We had made promises to all these people that their phase was coming. But Biden stopped it. He stopped it. Joanna Hyatt Kim, the American Hospital Association Vice President for Payment Policy, noted that most of the U.S. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations happened after June 20, excuse me, June 30, 2020. Earlier this year, amid an unprecedented surge, some big health networks, such as Grady Health System in Atlanta, feared the financial repercussions. So the money was approved, an enormous amount of money, and 
25 to 30% of it just sits there. The American Hospital Association has written to Becerra several times. Its most recent letter from the middle of last month noted the current increase in coronavirus cases and COVID-19 hospitalizations. It's producing staff shortages, driving up other costs. Hospitals and health systems, it said, are finding their resources, human infrastructure, and financial are being stretched to the brink. Sounds like a call from the from the former president of Afghanistan to the uh, president of the United States. That July 23 call, doesn't it, Mr. Producer? And it goes on, although not much more. And uh, so Biden has a wide open border, people coming into this country with the coronavirus. He's got over $50 billion to distribute here to these various facilities, particularly those that treat senior citizens, and they can't get it. And so we have people attacking people on radio and TV because they don't agree with their views on the vaccines or the masks or anything else when our own government is sitting on billions and billions of dollars of potential relief to help people. It's an amazing thing. I've made my position on vaccines as clear as I know how. Even a left-wing kook, phony journalist should be able to understand it. Mark, Mark, yes. Have you been vaccinated? Yes. Your family? Yes. What's your theory? I don't have a theory. I've said over and over and over again, you should contact your own medical doctor. Not pay attention to people on TV or politicians with agendas and all the rest. They know your personal condition. Some of you have maladies that make it impossible, or whatever the issue. You would normally consult your doctor about treatments and, and medicines anyway. So consult them for this too. Consult them for this too. I had a family member who has a, a condition where it was... Uh, It wasn't so simple to make a decision, but ultimately the decision was made by the family member that it was yes. That it was yes. I am not uh, going to push um, a doctrinaire position. I'm not going to push a government position, an anti-government position. This isn't about ideology with me. Now the purpose of a vaccine, however is to protect you. Like when you take the flu vaccine. You take the flu vaccine so you don't get the flu. Most of the time, many times, it doesn't work because they're not sure. They have to produce the vaccine before the flu season. There are different variants of flu and so forth or whatever. But you're not really taking the vaccine to protect everybody else. You're taking the vaccine to protect yourself. And in protecting yourself, you do protect a lot of other people. And I've explained this over and over and over and over and over again. But when the government comes out and basically says the vaccine is not all that useful with the variant, or maybe it is useful depending on which one it is, or that the variant, uh, that is the Delta variant over time, we see in the UK will wear itself out, and we're getting conflicting messages all the time. The people pushing it in the government are undermining their own arguments. That's why so many Americans don't trust them. It's not that they're wacko. It's not that it's ideological. 
They don't trust them. And there's a reason not to trust Fauci. He's been wrong about a lot. And he's a hack. And not just when it comes to this. One of my programs, I had a professor from Yale on. A real infectious disease expert, an immunologist. And he made the point that Fauci was so wrong during the early breakouts of HIV that even many of the the gay organizations were so furious with him. And so he's a bureaucrat. And he acts like a bureaucrat. He talks like a bureaucrat. I was also told in many of the meetings that he had during the course of the Trump administration, he was often a no and not a yes when they were pushing Operation Warp Speed. Somebody needs to do a story on Operation Warp Speed and how it succeeded cutting through all this red tape. I'll be right back. People always ask me, Mark, what do you do for a hobby? I'm doing it. And one of the things I do is read. And there's really a fantastic book that's been out. It's called First Friends by Gary Ginsburg, who's got quite a pedigree himself. Gary, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a fantastic book. And uh, unfortunately, like every other interview, there's only so much time. So let's jump right in. These First Friends that have an enormous influence on a president or on an administration. Chapter 1 talks about Jefferson and Madison. Now, this audience is quite familiar with Jefferson and Madison, but Madison was very, very close to Jefferson. I'm not sure how, how much people know about that. Tell us. Well, I certainly didn't. I knew they were great collaborators, but what I learned in writing this book is that they were also best friends, and they were best friends for 50 years, from 1776 to when Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826. And what I found fascinating is that their 50-year their 50-year relationship was deep. It was emotional. It could veer between the serious, like whether we needed a Bill of Rights, to the deeply personal. For example, when Jefferson tried to help Madison overcome being jilted by a 15-year-old when he was 32 years old. And they were complete opposites, as I write. Jefferson was this tall, dashing, huge personality. Madison was five foot four and quite reserved, but it worked in combination. And I think it's because Jefferson needed Madison's exacting mind and practical nature as much as Madison needed Jefferson's bold ideas and large personality. And I think in my book, and I think in American history, it's probably the single most powerful friendship in the history of America. It's really a great book. Everything. First Friends, it's really a great book. And um, how did they meet? They met actually in the Virginia House of Delegates when Jefferson was literally two months from penning the Declaration of Independence. And Madison was this 25-year-old, really shy guy who had, was his first kind of venture into public life. And Madison didn't say a word. Jefferson didn't even really notice him. But then a few years later, when Jefferson is the governor, he has this body called the Council of Advisors. Madison was appointed to that council. And it was then in that council where Jefferson realizes how brilliant Madison is. And from that point forward, the two formed, I think, this almost like a force field that, as I say, had a dramatic influence on the core structures of our democracy today. 
And, you know, people, many people may not realize Jefferson was not involved in the Constitutional Convention he wasn't, in, in person, exactly but, right. but they did write back and forth about it from time to time, right. didn't You they? know what's interesting, Mark, on that question is that, you know, Madison plays the kind of the primary intellectual role in the formation of the Constitution. Jefferson is actually in Paris. But what Jefferson does with Madison is he sends him books for the previous 24 months, 36 months. He sends him books on everything from English history to political philosophy to the history of failed republics. And from those books is how Madison kind of gets his intellectual grounding to form the Constitution that we live under today. So in effect, Madison, you know, did benefit greatly from that friendship just because of these books that he got from him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had access to them. And Jefferson truly was a standout, wasn't he? Even among all the other founders. He was. Just because, you know, but I'll I'll tell you, one thing I learned in this book is that Jefferson was great in part because he had Madison by his side. Mm -hmm. And Madison was great because of his friendship with Jefferson. They needed each other. You know, we, we may not even have had Thomas Jefferson in politics, but for James Madison. He gets run out of the governorship in 1781. And he has to flee Richmond when the British forces are coming. And he, he, he's really kind of excoriated by Virginians for abdicating responsibility. That's how they saw it. He didn't, but they put him on trial in a sense. And he's totally dispirited by that. And at the same time, his first wife dies. And he wants to quit politics. And it's only because of Madison in the Confederate Congress basically saying, you've got to stay in the game. And then he goes to the leaders of the Confederate Congress and says, we got to get Jefferson to Paris. we got to keep him involved in public life. Otherwise, I think we would have lost Jefferson to Monticello and the life as a kind of agrarian uh, philosopher inventor, mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to you know one of the great statesmen in our country's history. Now, let's start this. We're going to have to continue it after the bottom of the hour. Lincoln and Joshua Speed. Who's Joshua Speed? Joshua Speed was a Springfield, Illinois storekeeper who uh, greets Abraham Lincoln in 1837 when he's moved to the town to become a young lawyer, and he needs betting. But he doesn't have $17 for the betting, so Speed... Let's hold it right there. Let's hold it right there. America, this is a fascinating book, and you can tell that uh, Gary Ginsburg is a great storyteller. Factual, but storyteller. When we come back, we're going to get back to Lincoln and his buddy, Joshua Speed. The book is called First Friends, the Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Well worth it. I'll be right back. The new American Revolution starts here. The Mark Levin Show. Call in at 877-381-3811. It's a fantastic, intriguing book. First Friends, the Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents uh, by Gary Ginsburg. We have Gary Ginsburg, the author, on here. I want to jump right in again to Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Speed. Gary, tell us, tell us what you know generally. Right. So, uh, so Speed uh, says it's $17 for betting, as I said. Speed says, I don't have the money. Uh, Lincoln says he doesn't have the money. Speed says, well, I have a bed upstairs. Check it out. If you like it, it's yours. You can share it with me. So Lincoln walks upstairs, looks at the bed, comes back down and says, Speed, I moved. 
And for the next four years, they share that bed and become intimately close friends. But I don't believe they ever had a sexual relationship. I'm just going to say, what do you mean shared the bed? They actually shared a double bed for four years. But it was not uncommon back then for Mm -hmm. men to jump into bed together, particularly lawyers who were riding the circuit to do that. Because let's be clear, there weren't a lot of Holiday Inns Mm -hmm. back in, you know, Springfield, Illinois in the 1830s. So bedding was scarce and men would get into bed together without actually having, you know, any sexual relations. So they, they, they became, um, extremely close friends for four years. And it, it plays out in the most crucial moment in January of 1841, when after, as I say, the four years where they share every meal together, they share the bed together, they share their intimate secrets and fears and hopes and dreams. But in 1841, Lincoln becomes depressed, and he was prone to depression, and he takes to his bed, and speed ministers to him over the course of a month. And at one point, Lincoln wants to kill himself, so Speed takes away all of his sharp objects. And it was only because of Speed's intervention do we even know the name Abraham Lincoln today. But the real twist of this whole story is that they then basically, Speed goes back to Kentucky, Lincoln becomes, as we all know, famous lawyer, becomes a congressman, and then in the 1850s becomes um, a candidate for the Senate. And his views on slavery are evolving in the 1850s at the same time that Speed is the most successful businessman in Kentucky and also a slave owner. And they had grown apart for a bit in the 1840s over some disputes over unpaid legal bills. But in the 1850s, they start corresponding on the issue of slavery. And Lincoln bears his soul about how he is just tortured by the institution of it. And and Speed defends it, defends the institution. And they have a very honest debate in these letters. Speed's a Democrat. Speed doesn't even vote for Lincoln in 1860. But right after Lincoln gets elected, one of his first letters is to Speed saying, I need to see you in Chicago. Speed goes to Chicago, and the first thing Lincoln says to him is, Speed, I want you in my administration. I need you in my administration. Now, remember, they haven't really even seen each other in 20 years. But there was such a friendship that had been formed in those four years living together that Speed and Lincoln, you know, he just, Lincoln had just complete faith in, in Speed. Speed says, look, I'm too rich to take a job in the government, but I'll do something better for you. I'll keep Kentucky in the Union. It was one of the border states, one of the five border states. So Lincoln says, great, I I can't lose Kentucky. If I lose Kentucky, I'm going to lose all the other border states. Speed goes back to Kentucky and almost single-handedly keeps Kentucky in the Union by helping Lincoln message the war in a way that would keep Kentuckians supporting the Union effort, but by getting arms to Union militianists, by giving great comfort, emotional comfort to Lincoln during those first couple of years that he goes up to Washington to spend the first Thanksgiving with him. And they be, they really restore their friendship that had been so prominent 20 years earlier. And I think it's really because of Speed's intervention in 18, the late 1830s and 1841, and then the role he plays with Kentucky that is so crucial in Lincoln winning the war and, you know, becoming one of the great presidents of our, in our country's history. So it's a friendship that has had enormous consequence. And I guess Speed eventually had to let his slaves go, right? He did eventually let his slaves go. Although Kentucky was one of the last states to actually ratify the Emancipation Proclamation. But he had a change of heart um, after Lincoln died. 
Um, his brother, by the way, and this is a nice twist, became Lincoln's second attorney general in 1864. Mm. And that's, again, a product of the close friendship he had with Joshua. Let's, let's do one more here. Uh, Harry Truman and Eddie Jacobson. Uh, and obviously, Eddie Jacobson had an enormous impact with his recognizing Israel. But you go ahead. Sure. Well, I think in this case, it's the best example of a friend who, because of his close relationship with the president, is able to influence a critical decision that had huge consequences for the world. Um, he just shows in one climactic meeting in the Oval Office the importance, I think, of being able to speak in blunt, brutally honest terms about how he felt and what was right to convince the president to do something he didn't want to do. Um, and the issue is, uh, as you know, was whether Truman would recognize an independent Jewish state when the British moved out of the land in May of 1948. And the specific issue was whether he would see Chaim Weizmann, who was perhaps the most important man advocating for an independent Jewish state, who was biding his time up in New York, waiting to see the president who's refusing to see him. And, and Truman was just frustrated by um, the Jews who were lobbying him to recognize the state. He said at one point, exasperated, he said, Jesus Christ couldn't keep the Jews happy when he was alive. How am I supposed to? So at a certain point in early 1948, he shuts down and will not deal on this issue. And it's an issue that's obviously crucially important to the Jewish people because of the Holocaust and the refugee problem. It's crucially important to Eddie Jacobson, who had never asked his friend of 45 years, Harry Truman, for anything. They were friends from back in the war, the First World War. They ran a haberdashery together in the 1920s, and they were best friends um, growing, you know, being in Independence, Independence, Missouri. So he goes to see Truman. He flies halfway across the country in March of 1948 to convince Truman to see Chaim Weizmann, because without seeing Chaim Weizmann, the Jews, and Eddie in particular, think the issue will be lost, that he will side with George Marshall, who's his Secretary of State and the most powerful, revered man in his cabinet, who was dead set against a Jewish state and made it very clear. So he goes into the Oval Office. He's unannounced, uninvited. He just walks in, says to the appointment secretary, I want to see Harry. The appointment secretary knows of his friendship, so says, okay, go ahead, go in. But one thing you've got to promise, do not bring up Palestine. So Eddie says, fine, I won't bring it up. He goes into the Oval Office. He starts chit-chatting with his friend. At some point, Truman says, well, Eddie, what are you doing here? You've never asked for anything from me. Why would you fly halfway across the country? And Eddie says, you have to see Chaim Weizmann. And at that point, Truman erupts again and says, I'm sick of this issue. I'm sick of all you Jews who have been badgering me and berating me. I'm not seeing him. And at that point, Eddie Jacobson calls on 45 years of friendship with Harry Truman. And he looks around the Oval Office and he sees a statue of Andrew Jackson. Now, Andrew Jackson, Eddie knew, was Harry Truman's idol, idol in life. So he says, Harry... I'm looking at this statue of Andrew Jackson. What would Andrew Jackson do in this moment? Would he be cowed by a bunch of pestering Jews? By those, would, would he be a sissy? That's the word he uses. Like you're being a sissy right now and not doing what you know is right, which is to see Chaim Weitzman and recognize the state? I don't think so. Be like Andrew Jackson and do the right thing. Truman then gets really angry, turns his back to Jacobson. He bangs his, his fist against the desk. And then finally, he turns around and he says, okay, you goddamn son of a bee, I'll see him. And sure enough, he sees him a few days later in Washington. And 11 minutes after the state of Israel is declared in May of 1948, Harry Truman is the first foreign leader to recognize the independent state of Israel.
And do they continue their friendship afterwards, I take it? They do. They do. And in fact, um, they were supposed to take a trip to Europe and then to Israel in 1955. And unfortunately, Beth had to have dental work, so they delayed it for a year. By the time they were ready to set sail, uh, Harry uh, had a um, I'm sorry, Eddie had a heart attack and died. And at his funeral, Truman was so bereft, so overcome with emotion, he couldn't speak. And he later said that Eddie was, you know, not only his best friend, but the person who was single-handedly responsible for making a decision that he called one of the proudest of his life. And is he, uh, Eddie Jacobson, recognized in Israel at all? Yeah, yeah it's funny you have to, he, he was actually um, uh, feted in Israel in 1949, um, he was considered a hero by the state. And at one point, there was talk of him becoming the first president of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I think, you know, you ask most scholars and you ask most Israelis, they know the name Eddie Jacobson because of this pivotal role that he played. And, you know, if you talk to, to diplomats today, they say that American recognition was so important to this enduring alliance between Israel and the United States, because it, it got it off to a very quick and enduring start, and allowed, it, gave, it gave Israel a legitimacy in the world that it otherwise would not have had. So you can't underestimate the importance of this decision. Let me tell you something. I don't know you. You've talked to the audience, millions of people, for the last 10 or 12 minutes. You are a fascinating individual. Obviously, you've done your homework. Uh, I could listen to you all day, to be quite honest about it. I want my audience to know that this is a fantastic book. Uh, I know you have a lot of choices to make, and I know there's a lot going on in the world, but just 30, 40 minutes every day to sit back a little bit. This is the book. It's First Friends, the Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. You just heard from the author in in three really incredible situations. Gary Ginsburg, and so I want to strongly encourage you with the weekend coming. If you need a little break from things that are going on, just a little break. Uh, First Friends is the book, and really it is a pleasure to have spoken to you, and this you should be very proud of this book. It's a fantastic book, Gary. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. It's, it's a great pleasure and an honor to have been on your show. I, I'm very, very appreciative. And you can go to Amazon.com right now. A couple of clicks and get your copy. I think it'll deliver it Saturday or Sunday, or if you happen to be in a major bookstore or any bookstore, ask for it. First Friends is the name of the book, The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Take care of yourself, Gary. Be well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. You too. This is a great book, don't you think, Mr. Producer? It's fascinating. So when you're in there grabbing a copy of my book, which I pray to God everybody will do, get yourself a copy of First Friends, too. I don't even know Gary Ginsburg, the author. It's just that the book is so compelling, at least to me, anybody who likes history and so forth. And I think it will be to you, too. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. I want to leave you with this. Mohammed Ismail, former Afghan interpreter, with our buddy Brian Kilmeade today. Cut nine, go.
Is there a plan in place through land or another method to get them out? Have you been uh, have you been allied with anyone in America to help do this? I have been in dire contact in, in this situation, hopelessness, and I've been reaching out to our congressional delegation and senator's office, but there's no way yet because we are hoping things get better, but it's not. And the borders are closed right now and the embassies are closed. They cannot get anywhere because if they go outside, they will get exposed to outside threats. They're still waiting to see if they can find a light a resource to get out. And I'm working my, my best here as well to see if I can get them out, if not the U.S., because they made a promise and they not kept it. They have not kept it. It's embarrassed the whole country and has put everyone in, in jeopardy. You also told me real quick, there are assassinations going on right now, correct? They are going home to home. They're asking if they have been associated with the U.S. troops, armed forces, or government, or they have been in Afghan national uh, special forces, and they would execute them right away. The incident happened in Ghazni province. They massacred nine Azara minority Shias, and two of them were interpreters. We cannot forget this, and I'm not going to forget this. There are other things that go on, yes. But the plea of these people and the fact that there are American citizens there. Mr. Producer, I've been trying to find out what happened to these kids that were left over there. We don't know. What happened to that American University satellite campus there? And those kids? We don't know. Do we not care? It's time to move on to climate change. And the redistribution of wealth? Just things go back to normal? Soon we'll have football? But we can't, we can't just give up on this. We can't ignore this. Well, night has set on most of the United States. It's starting to set in the western parts of the country. Just imagine yourselves hearing a knock on the door. Imagine yourselves hearing a knock on the door. You have a spouse, you have little kids. Maybe your your parents or your grandparents are somewhere. Just think about this because, unfortunately, Washington is not. We salute our armed forces police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, please pick up your copy of American Marxism. Please spread the word right there on Amazon.com. And while you're there, grab First Friends. It's a great book. See you tomorrow. God bless.